Okay, so we're continuing on with the Crossroads series. We're going to be on this one for a little while because it's a long section of the book of Genesis. We're going through, uh, it's talking about Abraham, but Abraham is a pattern that's useful for us. He, the stuff that got put in the Bible was put there to show us not only his walk of faith, but how this pertains to our walk of faith. So studying Abraham is actually a really important thing for believers to do, new believers especially, but any believer at all. Now, we finished off last week where he did something that his father failed to do. He went all the way to the promised land. And promised land is always something that's been very interesting to me personally. I don't know why. Just this idea of having a land that was promised and you get to it, it's like, you know, I don't know. To me, it always caught my imagination. And it wasn't until we went through the Exodus series a couple years ago that I realized promised land, the promise isn't attached to the land, right? The, the promise is not just that. When he gets there, the Lord appears to him and he tells him, this is great. You're here now, right? We did this last week. To your descendants, I will give this land. And what does he do? He builds an altar and he praises the Lord. This is like the pinnacle. So he has gotten up and left because God told him to get up and leave. And he got there and apparently he got there without any kind of struggle at all because we don't have any details about his journey there. It's not a quick journey, by the way. It's not like he took two days. It took them a long time to get there. He gets there. God appears to him and says, hey, you are here and I'm going to give this land that you're walking. Everywhere you walk, everywhere your footsteps, it's your descendants' lands. Now, this is a man who has no children. <laughs> so this is also a promise from God that descendants are coming, and he is right in the middle of the promised land. I, I just want to emphasize that because I want you to show Abraham has done everything right so far, and he is in the center of the promised land. And as I said before, you know, the promised land without the promise is just dirt. You know, we can't just get focused on the fact that it's, it's promise and, oh, that's great. God gave us this land, and now we have this land. It's not about the land. It's about the promise, and the promise is not one-dimensional because we don't serve a one-dimensional God. He says, I'm going to give this to your descendants, but there's a lot more attached to that promise than that. And the reason there's a lot more attached to that is because when we live in God's promise, and God has a promise over every one of your lives. I may not know all the details of it, but I promise you God has a promise for your life. I promise you that he does. And he has something planned for your life, and he has a promise for it. And when you live in the middle of God's promise, you're also living in the middle of God's presence. And that's the important part. Because there are things you can see about God that his character is so reliable because he can't change, that his very character and presence is a promise. So if God's surrounding you, there are certain things you know are true. and it, it, it's, it's actually a promise. Like, for instance, there is no fear. You cannot have fear if you're in the presence of God. I mean, you can fear the Lord, but you can't fear anything else. And we see this all over the Bible. I'm just going to pick three of them here. But in 1 John, there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. If God's there, psh, fear goes. That's why God doesn't cause fear in your life. If you're feeling fear, it's not coming from God. It's coming from the other side because when God comes, fear has to leave. That's what the Bible says. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. If you're making decisions out of fear, you're not making them from God. I've said a million times, God does not drive, God leads. If you're feeling driven to do something, it's not coming from God. The psalmist puts it this way, the Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know, I am, I am surrounded by the biggest, baddest, most powerful thing in the entire universe. You know, to put it in modern terms, for those of you uh, who like these sort of things, you could put Thanos and all of the Marvel Avengers together, and they don't match God. You know, he's just more powerful than all of them together. They could make a movie, it'd be a very short movie. You know, it wouldn't, wouldn't last very long, that final battle. Not at all. Because God is just more powerful. 
So if you're in the center of his promise and you're surrounded by God, why would you be afraid of anything? You're fine. It doesn't matter. Because in fact, fear is incompatible with faith. God's trying to tell you, you need to live by faith. You need to come to me and, and, and I will give you the faith you need and, and, and we'll have a, a relationship together without fear because you will have faith instead of fear. Here's uh, a weird thing. This is an aside, but I read this in a blog. I thought this, this is probably true, but I had to really think about it. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell you that Jesus has faith. Never once said. Now that's weird, right? Jesus have, I, I don't think Jesus did have faith. He didn't need faith. Because I believe that we move from faith to trust to knowledge. Jesus was past faith. <laughs> he, he didn't need faith in God. He, he trusted God and knew him. Right? So he, that's why he was on this different level than we were. Because he didn't need. Faith is given to you as a gift by God to draw you to him. But the purpose of faith is to get you to trust. And the purpose of trust is to teach you who God is. And once you know God, then it's just become, it just becomes part of your world. That's how Jesus lived. And when you see Paul in Philippians, that's what he says. All this, that I may know him. He, Paul was still trying to get to know God to that level where he says, it just becomes part of my world. There are certain things that I just know, you know. And uh, gravity, I'm, I'm really comfortable with gravity. Uh, I know Facebook screws up. There's certain, tr- there are certain uh, truisms in my life, you know. Sometimes our broadcast doesn't work on Facebook because it will screw up. I trust Facebook to screw up, but I trust God to never screw up, right? He's always perfect. He's always there. We need to move from faith to trust to knowledge. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, what God does throughout your life is he teaches you about himself because if you know more about God, then you'll start trusting more. The fear will go away. You'll have peace. All these things you want in your life is, is satisfied by knowing who God is and being surrounded by his presence. And so he's always trying to teach you. Now, he has a school where he teaches you. And this is how, how his God, God's school kind of goes. He'll do something good for you. God always makes the first move. You have to understand. I hear people say, oh, I, you know, I found the Lord. Yeah, well, you found him. And he's been looking for you for a long time. You know, he always makes the first move. In fact, he makes up the first 999 steps. We take one and take all the credit. You know, that's kind of how it goes. He'll always do something for you. He did something for Abraham. Before we even got here, he was doing good things for Abraham. Because he and his father were in a foreign land that they shouldn't have been in. His father was worshiping idols he shouldn't have been worshiping. And God was blessing Abraham anyway. In fact, he had blessed him so much, there's something in Abraham's heart that he knew there was a God beyond the moon God. And that's how he found Jehovah. So God was calling him well before Abraham heard it. And he was blessing him long before Abraham was following him. Same thing with you, by the way. God has saved your life more times than you probably have any idea. And he has stepped into your life in a way to make himself real to you many, many times. It's just one time you caught on. He's always doing that. So he's always doing something good for us, but we're not paying attention. Step number two. We're just not paying attention or we're taking credit for it ourselves. I guess I got that job because I bought that new suit. Well, I'm glad I bought that money. You know, I spent that money. Well paid, you know. Um, whatever. It's, it's like, oh, they paid attention to me because I drew up, threw up my new car or whatever. It's just like, you think that I did that, you know. My wit, my, my intelligence, my whatever beauty, whatever it was you think, right? You don't understand. God's doing good things in your life, but you're taking credit. And so we're not taking credit. And so the next thing God does is he gives you a test about number one. And we hate tests. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've always hated tests. Even when I kind of knew the subject, because if you think about it, the only thing that happened in tests is you're going to disappoint the teacher. <laughs> Even if it's 100 answers and you get 99 right, then you're not going to be disappointed about that one. But usually I wasn't that good. You know, my percentages usually weren't that good. And the reason we hate tests 
is because the purpose we give tests is to certify what the student knows. That's what it's really all about, right? You take a test in first grade, why? To make sure you've learned it so we can push you to second grade. And you get all the way up to high school, you can take those tests, why? Because we want to be able to give you the diploma so you can stand up in your commencement service and tell us that you're going to change the world like everybody, everybody every graduation class ever has. You know, I'm going to change the world. You know, hey, class of 2019, whatever. They always say that. Uh, good luck. <coughs> the world remains fairly unchanged. But anyway, then you move on to college, right? And you've got you to certify that you got your degree or you go to a technical school. And here, or you take a driver's test so we can say, okay, we can trust this person driving 4,000 pound vehicles hurtling down the road at 80 miles an hour. We can trust them, right? It's because we're trying to certify what they know. Now, the bad part of a test is sometimes it shows what you don't know and you don't pass. And that's why we hate tests. But God never gives tests for this reason. When you see in the Bible God's testing somebody, he's not giving it because he needs to know what you know. He knows what you know. God knows full well, better than you, what you actually know. The reason he's giving you tests is so that you'll know what you don't know. That's the purpose of God's tests. He said, I know this. I know where you are, but you don't know where you are, so I'm going to test you. And then we'll both know what I already know. And that's the purpose of it. So he's trying to teach you. He'll give you a test, and he's, he's expecting that, you know, a lot of times you fail. Here's the good news. If you fail God's test, you don't get an F. You get an incomplete do-over. So he always like, take you back. Okay, well, I'll take you back here. You didn't learn, so let's go through this again. I'm going to give you a do-over. We're going we're to keep going until you get it right. Some of us have been taking the same test from God for 25 years. You know, someday I'm going to get it right. Sooner or later, I'm going to. But I believe one of the very first things, if not the very first thing, God will always teach you. If you're a new believer or if you haven't learned it yet, he will always try to teach you Jehovah Jireh. Now, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but especially the Old Testament, we see different names of God. A lot of times in our Bible, we'll just simply say God because we're not very creative with our word for God. It's just God. But in the Hebrew, it'll actually be a name. Jehovah, which is his name, and then something attached to it. Jehovah Jireh means God provides. The very first thing he wants to get you to understand is he'll provide. No matter what your situation is, God is greater than your situation, and he will provide. And you have to get to trust that. You have to move from faith into trust. Because if not, the devil can always drive you away from God by using fear. And he does it absolutely all the time. In Deuteronomy, he comes back, he tells the Israelites, that's what he was trying to do in the wilderness the whole time. He said, he humbled you, he let you be hungry, and then he fed you with manna, which you didn't know what it was. But he did that, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Matter, what he's saying is, it doesn't matter what you have in your, in your, in your pantry. What matters is what God speaks, because he can create bread. He can create it. He can bring it into existence. He can do anything. He brought the manna from nowhere. And the word for manna, by the way, for those of you who don't know that, literally is, what is it? <laughs> that's, the, that's how that word translates. They saw it. What is it? I don't know. It's food. We have food every day. Why did he choose to feed them with manna? He could have given them a canteen that would never run dry and a pantry that always filled back up with food. He kind of does this later when, in the story of Elijah and the widow. He could have done that. He could have brought angels down to do a feast every day, you know, a little heavenly feast. Why did he bring the manna? Because he was trying to teach them to trust him. The purpose of manna, manna is to teach you that God will provide every day, even though you don't see it coming. By, you know, week 16, all the Israelites knew the manna was coming. But week one, they had no idea, right? So the purpose is he's trying to teach you, I'll always provide for you. You can trust me. 
By the way, he didn't do that with sandals. Their sandals just never wore out, right? He didn't need to trust him for sandals. He needed to trust him for food. Because if you get to trust for food, then uh, you know, you'll trust him for anything. And we were talking about boot camp uh, yesterday at the thing, I guess, because we had a couple of kids there right out of boot camp. One of the first things they do is they teach you they control your food. <laughs> it's amazing how motivated the soldiers get when they control their food. And that's what they do, because this is a natural thing built into you. And God says, if you can trust me to provide for you and take care of you, then the rest of this will get easier. But as long as you're always worried that I'm not going to take care of you and you have to go off and take care of yourself, then we're going to have problems. So what he does, now I want you to see this. Abraham has done an amazing thing and he's in the middle of God's promise and God gives him a test. Why? Because he hasn't been paying attention. So Abraham is the father of faith. How well does the father of faith do on his first test? Well, you know what the matrix tells us. You have to let it all go, Neo. Fear, doubt, and disbelief. Whoa. <laughs> what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. Everybody falls the first time. Everybody falls the first time, right? It's okay. God's not going to fail you. You're going to just get up. He's going to say, okay, well, we're going to go back and we're going to try again. So here's what happens next. He's in the middle of this thing. He's been praising God. He's on the altar. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I serve a great God. And the next line of Genesis says this. Now, um, there was a famine in the land. A famine? This isn't like, he's in a promised land. It's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey, you know? Oh, there's a famine. How can a promised land get a famine? How does that even happen? He brings him there. He's there. We don't know how long, but, you know, a couple weeks, he's like, oh, I love this place. All of a sudden, there's no rain and things start drying up. A famine is in the land. And Abraham went down to Egypt. <laughs> I love you, God. This is great. Thank you for this promised land. Uh, no rain. You know what? I'll see you later. Uh, I'm going to go over to Egypt. I'm leaving the promised land. Right? This, is, this is the first thing. I love it. Love you. Got to go. And this is what he does. For the famine was severe. So the Bible tells us he didn't just run the first sign of trouble, but when it wasn't raining, it didn't look good. He goes, whoa, okay, promised land's cool and everything. I liked it better when it was green. I'm hanging down to Egypt right now because I think they still have provisions there, and I don't have anything here. I haven't had a chance to set up a stockade. I haven't, built, I haven't planted. I don't have harvest that I have in a, in a barn anywhere. I've got nothing, and everything's drying up. I got to go. There's no way I can stand here. I'm leaving your promise, Lord. I'm going to go to Egypt, and this is the famine test. Now, the famine test comes in many different ways. This is a common one. It doesn't the only one. The, the other thing you could say is this is an external test because the first thing about it is it's not caused by anything you did. And, and some of us need to realize that because sometimes we're right in the middle of God's promise and all of a sudden we're getting tested with, well, what did I do now? You know, poor Abraham. He must have been like, what did I do, God? I was praising you. Did I not praise you enough? Did I not praise you the right way? Did I sing off key when I sang that hymn? Do you not like that song? Why all of a sudden do I have a famine here? I shouldn't. I'm in the middle of the promised land, God. How is there a famine here? Must be something I did wrong or else God hates me. One or the other. No, neither one of those things. You're about to face a test. It has nothing to do with anything you did. And it seems like it goes exactly against whatever God has called you into. Whatever God called you into, this is not how it's supposed to go. 
You know, you're, you're in the middle of it. And it's like, okay, we're going. We're really taking off now. And all of a sudden, no, that's not happening anymore. Like, well, well this isn't working. This can't be from God. You know, we've, I've faced famine tests here at Spirit Chapel, I tell you. You know, we moved in, we took over, you know, we're, we're really taking off, here we go, and the next thing I know, there's nine people in church. God, you want me to build a church? How am I supposed to do that? You know, I'm still trying to figure out where my music minister is coming from. I, I, I don't have anybody, how am I supposed to build this church? This is not congruent with what your promise to me was. This isn't fitting in at all. One of us is off here. You know, either you did something wrong, God, which I don't think you did, or I'm doing something wrong, which I don't know what I did, because this is not going to help me achieve what you have called me to do. In fact, this is going against what you have called me to do. And finally, you need to understand it can happen when you are in the very center of God's will. Abraham was exactly where God wanted him to be. It's just he hadn't been paying attention on the journey to get there. So God needed to teach him that he would provide. And more than anything else, he needed to teach him something that's very hard for us to learn. If you're trying to take care of it, you're going to screw up. Before you meet the Lord, who takes care of you? You do, right? You survive on your wits. You survive on, on what your capabilities are. You know, you get very good at manipulating and doing things, or maybe you're not good. Maybe you're getting, you know, maybe the life's kicking your butt. But, but you're been, you've been surviving on you, right? What I can do, what I can think, what I can feel, what I can manage to pull off, that's what I'm surviving on. And God says, I want you to trust me to take care of all that. Oh, that sounds really good until the famine hits. Well, clearly God's not doing a good enough job, so I'm going to go back to doing what I've been doing. And if you keep going back to the way you were, you're always going to be what you were. And God's trying to make you something different. So we have to understand that at this point, you, he, he reached two paths in his little journey here. One path was still the promise. You want the promise? You remember the promise included not only a son, but generations following you, going to make you a great nation, that's all part of the promise. Egypt's not going to make you into a great nation. Egypt will feed you for a day. What do you want? Do you want Pharaoh or you want the promise? Take, take your pick. See, Egypt is where we trust the prosperity of man instead of the promise of God. And a lot of us have Egypt in our lives. You know, it might be your job. It might be the government. The government will take care of us. We just need to elect the right guy. And the government will take care of everything. It might be your family. It might be whatever. But there's something about, if I just had this, I'd be all right. And then I'll come back to God. Let me go, you know, build up my 401k. I might have to do a couple, you know, a little bit shady deals, but I'm going to put some money in the bank and then I'm okay. And then I'll come back to the promise. But nothing destroys faith faster than living by fear. If you're living by fear, you're not living by faith. And let me tell you something. Abraham went down to Egypt because he was afraid. I can't make it here. Forget the promise. I got miles to feed. I can't do this here. I can do it in Egypt. I can see how I can do it in Egypt. I can't do it here. So I got to go there. If I go there, I'll be fine, but not here. I can't. So this is, um, this is three truths now about your Egypt in your life. If you don't know what it is, let me help you identify it, okay? Because we all have it. We have something we turn to that seems completely reasonable. You think it through, this makes sense. I can see this isn't working, this God thing's not working, but I can take care of it here. I'm gonna make that move. It makes sense to us, right? Um, in fact, Proverbs warns us about that. There's a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. Oops, <laughs> that's a pretty big variance. Seems okay, oh, but you'll die, just that. The other thing is, Egypt always relies on favor from somebody else, a person. 
relative, boss, government, someone. Someone that you know. I can go to them and get through this. I don't need to trust in God because I can go there. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe that's the person that you're relying on. Uh, Psalmist says this, don't trust in princes. You know why? Because they're mortal and there's no salvation there. Whenever they're dead, even if they had the best intentions, they're gone. Their thoughts gone the moment they're dead. You've trusted in something temporary, he says. You need to trust in the Lord. See, spirit-led means we're not led by our instincts. We're led by our instructions. This is hard for us to get. Because we've spent our whole lives trusting our instincts. For better or for worse, our instincts have gotten us where we are. <laughs> you know, I'm doing all right. You know, I was doing okay before I tried to let God take over. And now the famine hits and I'm, I'm not ready to, to trust him anymore. I was willing to trust him in the prosperity, but I'm not willing to trust him in the famine. And God's saying, I need you to learn to put all of your instincts aside and listen to my instructions because I'm going to take you places you can't get to on your own. Do you want to do that or you don't want to stay like you've always been? These are your choices. We make fear-based decisions all the time. The problem is fear begets fear. Fear will always drive you into more fear. When fear makes you make a decision, that decision is not going to make you unafraid. <laughs> it's going to make you more afraid because now you've got to do something else. Uh, when, I was, when I was young, when I was in my 20s, my father had a computer store for, I don't know, like a year or two. It failed miserably uh, for a lot of reasons. But uh, one thing, we're always trying to close deals. You know, people walk in the store and they'd say, boy, you know, if you had this, I'd sure buy that. But I have to have it by Thursday. And, I, and so FedEx was still kind of taking off then. It wasn't where it is now, but it was there. And, you know, their slogan was when it absolutely positively has to be there overnight. You know, FedEx, that was their slogan. And I cannot tell you how many times we would order stuff in for these people who said, man, if I just had that, I would definitely buy it, but I have to make my decision now. Oh, the only way we can get it here is to FedEx it. And so we'd pay these. I mean, we would sometimes order stuff in that didn't cost as much as the FedEx. It was nuts, right? And I was doing inventory shortly before the store closed, and I was looking at the you know, inventory, and I was looking at all these things still on my wall, and every one of them had been FedExed in. And I looked at that, and I looked at my father, and I said, you know what I've learned in this year that I've been here? There is no such thing as absolutely positively overnight. It just doesn't exist. Now, maybe in your world it does, but in my world it didn't. Every one of those was a mistake. Every one of those, because they weren't really telling me they were going to buy it anyway. They were just giving me an excuse why they had to leave with grace. You know? It had nothing to do with this. But I was like letting fear drive us. We need to close these deals or we're going to close the store. We need to make these decisions now. And I have learned that every time I make a decision out of fear, that I'm going to lose the deal or I'm not going to make this work, Every one of those decisions has been bad. In fact, I've finally gotten to a point in my life where I've been making decisions now for like half a century that when someone tells me I have to give them an answer now, it makes my answer easy. It's always no. I always say, well, thank you for that. that I was really on the fence here, but you just made it easy. If I have to make my answer now, it's no. Because I know that fear begets fear. This is going to only get worse. <laughs> this is not going to get better. This is going to get worse. And I'm not going to do that anymore. We have to learn, you know, that we're not being driven by fear anymore. I'm not going to let fear drive me. I'm going to let faith lead me. I'm not going to let fear drive me. So what happens to Abraham? Okay, well, we've got to make a move. We've got to get down to Egypt. So he's going down to Egypt. They're on the way, and something occurs to him because he's still being driven by fear. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, he turns to Sarah. Now remember, Sarah is his wife. She's his beautiful wife. He loves her so much that even in 75 years, well, probably about 65 years, of his life, she has not given him an heir. He's never taken another wife. 
He's never taken a concubine. He's stayed faithful to one wife, even though you know, decades and decades have passed with no children. He's faithful. He loves her. He loves her deeply. And yet he's heading to, to Egypt, and this thing, this person, this, this relationship that he loves so much, he realizes it's going to put him in jeopardy. He says, um, I know you're a woman of beautiful countenance. You're a beautiful woman, amazingly beautiful. Therefore, what's going to happen when the Egyptians see you and how beautiful you are, they're going to say, this is his wife, which she is. And so they will kill me, but they'll let you live. They'll kill me to get you. I, I know they're going to do that because you're so beautiful. They're going to, that's what's going to happen as soon as you walk through the door. So let me ask you, back up a second. If you know this is going to happen when you enter Egypt, why are you entering Egypt? <laughs> what are you even doing entering Egypt? So this should be the moment he realizes, they're going to kill me to try to get my wife. Oh, we can't go there. And he should forget it, bring the camels back. We're heading back to the famine land because I can't go to Egypt. They're going to kill me. No, instead, fear begets fear. And he comes up with this brilliant idea. Why don't you just tell me you're my sister? And then it will be well with me for your sake and I will live because of you. So not only am I going to live, when they see you and they think you're my sister, they're going to try to bribe me with good things to get you to be the wife of Pharaoh. He's literally pimping out his own wife. So he'll be okay. Now, how in the world do you take this person who's so dear that you love so much that you wouldn't even upset her by bringing another wife in, and you do this? Fear. Fear will make you do almost anything when fear really gets to drive in you. I have met and counseled with so many people that will always say the same thing to me. I don't know how I did this. I, I can't believe I did this. But I don't have no problem at all believing what they did because they told me the story of the fear. Fear will make you do weird things. Things you never believed you could do. You know, fear makes animals chew their paws off to get out of traps. Fear will make you do stuff. Devil's laughing when he's driving you with fear. And so it was when he came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman and that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. There's a beautiful woman just came in. Now, Pharaoh has a harem. That's what I'm saying. Sarah must have been a knockout. So she comes in and, boy, you've got to add this one to your harem. She is gorgeous. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house, and he treated Abram well for her sake. They gave him sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and donkeys and, cam and camels. This is like going to be a dowry for a wedding. He's going to marry off his wife to Pharaoh, so he'll be all right. This is an incredible move from someone who just a few verses ago was a demonstration of faith. This is what fear does to you. Because here's three real truths about Egypt. The third one is, it seems to work. I know you guys thought I forgot that third one because I said three and I pointed two up. I saw you guys taking the notes. He's only got two here. The third one is, it seems to work. It really does. In fact, if you just looked at this in earthly terms, the plan worked perfectly. Worked to perfection. They're there. They're not in a famine. They got tons of stuff now. Everything's great. Well, except for that whole fact that Pharaoh's going to take his wife. But other than that, everything's going according to plan. Except for this, how in the world are you going to have children by Sarah if she's in Pharaoh's harem? Think he's going to give you conjugal visits? How is God's promise now going to happen in your life? See, because here's the real truth about Egypt. There is no tent and there is no altar. Remember we talked about that? How he always stayed in the tent? Because he knew this wasn't his, his life. Eventually he'll go to live with the Lord in heaven. There was no tent. Oh, he's in a palace now. Oh, it's a nice palace. Because the devil makes nice traps. You understand, right? The lure of the devil is always nice. Come on, you guys know that. 
You have fishermen make a lure. You throw a rusty can in the water. No, you make it look like what the fish wants most. The devil always makes good lures. Of course it looks good. It's a palace. This is amazing. There's no altar there. You'll never once see Abraham utter Jehovah's name in Egypt. He was in the middle of his enemies and calling out to God and talking about how great he is. Now he's, I don't want to tell anybody to tell because Pharaoh thinks he's God. I don't want to upset him. There's no altar, there's no tent, and there is no way out. He's stuck. You think he can leave? You think he can take Sarah with him and just leave? You think he can go to Pharaoh and say, you know what, this is kind of a mistake. That's actually my wife. I'm going to be leaving now. Think that's going to work? How is he going to get out of this? He is totally stuck. This is what's known as failing a test. <laughs> like you can't go much worse than this. God's plan is now crushed because he put his plan in, in a human being and we screw up. But God's better than we are. That's the good news. The real good news is God gives us a test. We blow it. And you think, man, I'm done. But the infinite God is never out of time. You may have screwed up royally. You really may have really screwed up. So bad you're saying there is no way out. That's why you need to turn back to God and say, okay, I tried this with my instincts, and I really made a mess of things. I give up. I'm going to give it back to you. Because God can do anything, including changing Pharaoh's heart. You always have to understand the Egyptian's bondage is just waiting for you outside the promised land. Don't get comfortable just because you're in the promised land. Don't ever just say, oh, okay, I'm here now. Because God didn't bring you the promised land to retire. He brought you the promised land to learn how to trust him and to grow and to accomplish what he has in mind for you, which is more than just being in the land. Don't think if we could chapel driver going up there and going to take it easy. The purpose of your life is not to take it easy. It's to go to heaven breathless. We got stuff to do, right? God's not done. God's not done with Abraham. Thank God. So the Lord sends a plague to Pharaoh and he plagued his house because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And Pharaoh calls to Abraham. So what probably happens here, we don't see this, but Abraham, uh, if Egypt uh, gets these plagues, and actually says God sent tumors, some translations, like things, people get, his whole household's getting sick. So he asks his wise men, what's going on? And they consult their false gods, but the real God interrupted. And so I'll tell you what's going on. Sarah is Abraham's wife. And Pharaoh goes, whoa, what's this? You know, this powerful God I've angered, I didn't even know. And so he calls Abraham and says, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? I might have actually taken her as my wife. That was the path she was on. She was in his house already. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go. Get out of here. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Get out. So God had to have him ejected from Egypt. There was no way Abraham was getting out of there, but God took him back. And he's going to go back to where he was because he has no place else to go. And when he gets there, God takes him and says, this is your promised land. This. And I will do what I have said I will do. Don't worry about it. We have to understand that sometimes we run away in fear from God's promise. But God is always watching. And we need to learn how to trust that God will do what he says he will do. And he'll keep bringing us back. Are you ready to trust me this time? Actually, the Bible does say that eventually he stops bringing you back. And there does come a time he says, okay, okay. C.S. Lewis once said, there's only two kinds of situations. The man who comes to God and says, your will be done. And the man to whom God says, okay, 
have it your way. That's kind of how it ends up, one or the other. But God has a promise for you. And the problem is right outside that promise, Egypt waits. And it calls you. You can do better here. And if you go down there, it's death. You will fall short of the promise. You'll never see it. We have to learn how to stop trusting our instincts and start trusting that the God who spoke it is the God who will do it. Would you all please pray with me?